coming up on today's show, the growing threat of domestic terrorism in Canada, fueled in part by these pandemic restrictions. What's the real risk from blood clot issues around vaccines? We'll get some context, important context. And what happens in Afghanistan now, the U.S. leaving by September 11th at the very latest. We have seen firsthand recently uh, in our part of the world just how frustrated people are over these ongoing pandemic restrictions. Uh, People are fed up. You know, the economic hardship, the restrictions, just, you know, it's dragging on so long, the social isolation, they all feed into each other. And it's it's devastating for a lot of people. You can't deny that. And while most people are soldiering on some protests, there is a fringe element that is taking this farther. And we need to be aware of it. It's something that's in our country. As I said, it's a fringe element, but it, it it's been growing over the past several years. And there are concerns that the climate that we've created around this pandemic is only going to fuel that fire even further. The National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliament has identified a growing threat in our country, and it's not from outside, it's from within. Hate groups that are going both up in number and in size, and again, the pandemic may make it only worse. Uh, Dr. Christian Luprecht joins us now. Um, Dr. Luprecht is a national security expert and a professor at Queen's University. Doc, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Good morning, my pleasure, Shay. Let's just get the lay of the land with these groups uh, in terms of uh, how prevalent they are, how many they may be identified within our country. I know the Parliamentary Committee was looking into that, and there's a lot of them, actually, right? Right, so in its annual report, so the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians was set up two years ago, and it, for the first time in Canadian history, allows parliamentarians to have access to classified information mm-hmm. um, so that it's not just in the hand of our security services, but also in the hands of the people who we elect, because inherently they can interpret things and, and provide a different strategic perspective than, for instance, the security services might on this particular issue. And so this is part of their broad annual report that flagged a whole host of challenges, Russia, China, yeah. foreign interference. Um, uh, and, uh, but it, it maintains that one of the most pressing immediate challenges remains uh, terrorism-related activities and the rise of particularly right-wing activities. And this is also fits into the picture, for instance, that we learned from um, the Washington Post and U.S. intelligence assessments with a rise of um, a significant spike even in the last year of attacks um, uh, that are attributed to to domestic right-wing terrorism. And so this is not just a a Canadian challenge, it is a broader continental challenge, and there's a broader challenge across uh, democracies and our allied and partner countries. And so I think it's helpful to have the conversation that you and I are having to raise awareness uh, about the many challenges that our democratic institutions face. Yeah, and, you know, in the report they talk about how back, you know, going back five, six years, there was maybe 150 of these groups within the country, and now they've managed to identify up to 300 of them. So we've seen a a, a proliferation of these groups, really. So this is a function of a number of dimensions. One is that there's always been a spillover effect from the United States. So we've always had a presence, for instance, of the freemen of the land, of the sovereign citizens movements. Um, but by and large, they've they've flown sort of under the radar because uh, they've traditionally not wanted to attract the attention of law enforcement or security intelligence because they know that that runs sort of counter to, uh, to, to their overall objectives. So it was just sort of a community unto its own, but 
but it didn't cause a whole lot, a whole host of problems. But of course, it did become uh, come to prominence in Edmonton about uh, I'm trying to think about maybe four years ago when uh, during a, um, um, a, a during a knock by by police, one police Edmonton police officer was uh, was shot and killed by uh, a member of uh, of a sovereign citizens movement. And so since then, it's become clear that these groups aren't just a community of people who hold objectionable ideological views. They also ultimately pose a serious risk to public safety. And what we've seen, of course, even in the last year, and in particular with the events of January 6th at the U.S. Mm -hmm. Capitol, um, that they are increasingly um, not, they're increasingly, their views and their activities run fundamentally counter to the democratic values, the democratic institutions that we hold, and that they've become sort of a, a, a not just a counterculture, but a significant challenge to society and democracy uh, more broadly that is augmented by technological change. Um, it was always sort of felt, I think, that you know the main challenge came from sort of jihadi, Salafist-inspired uh, terrorism movements, and with Christchurch, it became clear that uh, right-wing movements are as much of a global phenomenon and poses much of a threat uh, to uh, Western societies and the safe and, and the well-being of our societies uh, as jihadi salafist terrorist movements. Yeah, what's the deal with these groups? What is, is there a common theme? Is there something that unites them in their outrage and in their efforts? One of the elements that brings them together is generally a misgiving or frustration uh, either with the institutions and democratic institutions more broadly or with particular forms of government. Um, in the United States, for instance, we've, uh, to some extent, um, the Republicans came to reap what they sowed because, of course, for instance, during the Obama administration, we saw um, uh, the Republican Party uh, uh, maligning basically anything and everything that Obama and that his, his administration administration did. And so that fundamentally polarized U.S. society, uh, pile on top of that Russian and Chinese interference efforts that are yeah. often US election interference is interpreted as people trying to manipulate the results. And it's actually much broader. It's simply about to polarize our societies and to polarize our discourse to try to make democracy as unworkable as possible. And so that's, I think, really sort of the what, what brings them together is that they, they engage in this extremely polarizing discourse that makes it very difficult for democratic institutions to reconcile the differences um, that people hold. And it's been wildly successful. I mean, you need only look at the at the current climate in Canada, uh, just in terms of the polarization and, and, and that divide, and it seems to grow every day. Yeah, and it's interesting that if you, you know, Wikipedia is about the only page now that brings people from all sorts of different ideological perspectives together because the internet, Facebook, the algorithms, you know, you yeah, mentioned yeah. them in your introduction, have essentially created uh, this sort of echo chamber where people only read and people only see the views that reinforce views that they already hold. And in particular, if these views um, then malign other people, then it sort of reinforces the, the position that everyone else is necessarily bad 
and you sort of have to defend the truth and you have to defend sort of what's right. And so what, we've, what we're losing in our democratic society is the ability to understand that we might disagree with other people, but we can still respectfully disagree with them and have an informed conversation. Instead, this is simply becoming this, this extremely polarizing perspective and then add on top of that um, an increased tolerance among these groups for violence as a means to advance a particular political agenda and you have a very toxic mix that is of considerable concern both to law enforcement and security intelligence. Uh, Christian, I'm going to get you to hang on for just a second then we'll talk about how the pandemic fits into all of this. Uh, if you can just hold on for half a second here, this is uh, Christian Luprecht we're talking to who is a national security expert and a professor at Queen's University. We're going to take a quick break and then talk about how these various fringe elements in these extremist groups um, may be emboldened and in fact grow because of the pandemic. We'll do that right after this. We're chatting with uh, Dr. Christian Luprecht, a national security expert and a professor at Queen's University. And um, Doc, I just want to, you know, we're getting a lot of texts about this. And we always do when we have this discussion. Um, you're only talking about right wing. You keep saying right wing. What about the left? What about the left? I just want to point out the reason we're talking about the right wing is because this is a government report that was put together by national security um, experts and officials. And that's what they have identified as right wing um, extremist groups as being the concern. The exact same thing happened in the United States. But in the interest of fairness, Christian, um, where does the left wing fit into this? Why are we always talking about right wing extremist groups? We know there are left wing extremist groups as well. Um, what's what? Just give us that breakdown. Yeah. So, for instance, in Canada, we also have a a, a small but nonetheless sort of significant tradition of people, for instance, in the environmental movement, who resort to extremist uh, violence. And there's a case I'd have to look dating back uh, in Alberta about uh, a dozen years, also with connections sort of across the border. So your listeners are absolutely right that sort of the 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 ideological extremes that uh, come um, in, in particular that come out of a U.S. environment also have spillover effects into Canada um, on, on both sides of the, uh, of the ideological spectrum. But if you look at the empirical number of incidents and you look at the trajectory of both the growth in groups and the number of incidents that um, are criminal in nature or at a minimum illegal in nature, uh, the growth pattern has been on the side of of anti-establishment and, um, you know, what, what broadly people tend to call right-wing groups, which is this whole umbrella of different, as you pointed out, people who have various sorts of grievances. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of why, so, it, so it's not to discount the challenges that come from both sides of the, of the ideological spectrum, um, the, and, and, and on both sides sort of perhaps a growing tolerance to resort to illegal, criminal, or possibly also violent measures in order to advance particular political agendas, but the growth pattern has been um, for this type of activity on the right side of the political spectrum. Yeah, and extremism is extremism. And, you know, putting it left and right is, I mean, if you're a conservative, I think most conservatives are just as appalled by some of the actions they see by that fringe extremist element uh, as a liberal would be. So I don't, you know, they may come from the right side of the spectrum, but to label that as a conservative movement is, is certainly not fair. 
Yeah, I think we need to distinguish two different two different elements here. People often talk of of, of radicals, and radicalism simply means like you have opinions that might be sort of on the margins of what's sort right. of generally acceptable, but you don't need to be a radical in order to be a violent extremist. So, 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 um, so sympathizing with, there are lots of people who sympathize with violent extremism, but they don't actually actively support such groups and they would never engage in violence themselves. And a number of the people who engage in violence themselves are not people who actually subscribe to violent extremism as an ideology. They engage in violence for any host of reasons. And so it's important that that we not conflate the views that people hold in a democracy because ultimately in a democracy the state shouldn't be there to police the views that people hold the state needs to be there to police criminal activity and illegal activity um, and simply the views that people hold is not necessarily a good predictor of people engaging in violence there's a host of other metrics around that and that's i think where we need to be careful in terms of distinguishing discourse with which we might disagree, mm-hmm. but that is not ultimately um, uh, driving violence per se from the people who actually engage in genuine criminal activity or uh, have the intent of doing so. Um, okay, so now let's talk about how this whole pandemic situation and the lives we've all been leading for the past year can feed into this uh, growing movement. Um, that's one of the concerns identified in this report is that, uh, you know, the restrictions we're putting in to keep each other safe may actually be uh, causing us problems uh, down the road in terms of extremism. Corey Hearn, who was recently sentenced to six years in prison, is probably a good case study in this. So uh, the listeners might remember, he's the guy who drove in his pickup truck from rural Manitoba uh, to Ottawa last July in order to, quotation mark, in quotation marks, arrest the prime minister uh, at Rideau Hall. And so here's somebody who already had uh, challenges in his life beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, he then faced challenges with regards to his business during the pandemic. Um, and that then is compounded uh, that, you know, people are spending more time at home, so they have more time to spend on the Internet and to chase down various rabbit holes of people's views and blogs with whom they might sympathize. It's more difficult these days on the Internet to distinguish from, you know, some some bigot somewhere who might be posting something from from a legitimate news source. Um, and so I think those are sort of the, the you know, the I think people have really suffered. They've They've suffered mentally they've suffered in terms of their businesses they've suffered in terms of their jobs we've cut down their interactions human beings are fundamentally social beings they need to live in community um and uh, um and 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 uh, i think so when you have these compound effects that i think many people are uh, experiencing i think we can do this for a short period um but when you get into prolonged um periods such as we have now you can see how people um, would might end up being frustrated with governments telling them to do things that fundamentally run counter to human nature, run counter to their personal preferences, and run counter to their interests in terms of, for instance, advancing their own uh, prosperity and economic well-being. So um, those kinds of feelings, resentments, they don't go away immediately when this is over, right? Like this is a, a, a situation that we have created, um, you know, with the best of intentions, I think, that is going to affect us for some times in terms of these, this radicalization and, and these groups. 
Well, I think there's a steep learning curve here. We can't be doing this again. And I think, you know, one of the challenges in Canada is we really missed the boat here. We missed this boat on strategic intelligence assessments. And I think we need to take a hard look at countries such as Taiwan, New Zealand, Australia, that did a whole lot better, uh, in part because they're much better postured in, in, in strategic assessments and intelligence, and because they were better postured in terms of, uh, of actually having prepared for a pandemic. So I think one of the lessons is this sort of uh, approach that, you know, this very homeopathic approach that we take to security and to intelligence in Canada is no longer serving us well in the 21st century and that we need to be, uh, we need to be better postured. I think the other lesson is that as a society, we're going to need to learn to be more resilient to disruptions uh, of the 21st century, whether those are the disruptions in terms of electricity that we saw in Texas or it's disruptions of biosecurity as with the, uh, uh, as with the pandemic. Um, and I think we've, our governments have not been as proactive as they could and should be. And I think the fact that we're basically with the pandemic, we're building the plane while flying it um, mm. is, is a good example that um, the, the, I think the, the learning effects and the challenges from this for democracy, um, we, there's going to be a considerable lag effect of trying to return to some sense of normal and rebuilding the trust and legitimacy of democratic institutions and democratic leadership. Um, and we, um, if, if we have to go through this again, I would be deeply concerned about the deleterious consequences uh, for democracy uh, for democracy as a whole. And so I think there's a, there's a lot to learn here, um, you know, and, and hopefully um, we, can, uh, we can learn from our mistakes and not repeat them again because this is going to happen again and we can't be doing it the same way again. Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, we, like you say, we're building the plane as it's flying, but next time we aren't. So we better have a better handle on exactly how to, to handle this in a much better way. Well, the military always likes to say, you know, no first and uh, no plans arise first contact yeah. with the enemy. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a plan. And I think one of the things that it shows in Canada, we didn't really have a plan. Um, and uh, and I think we need to have a plan for uh, how we engage on the on the security and intelligence side to posture ourselves for threats that are below those of conventional sort of military conflict, whether that's in the cyber domain, the biosecurity domain, or political interference. And we also need to. Um, posture ourselves better in terms of societal resilience and our ability to respond uh, to profound disruptions because, look, our adversary are try, adversaries try to do everything from take down our electricity grids uh, to try to disrupt our transport systems. Um, and, you know, we've, we see these disruptions also, you know, it, it, it's, it doesn't even need to come from adversaries. We saw earlier this year, you know, earlier last year from within our own societies, the disruptions, for instance, to our transport system. And I think we just need to be much better position to be able to uh, uh, to continue because if democracy and democratic leaders are thought uh, to be not to be able to respond and respond effectively and respond in effective and timely fashion that is going to fundamentally undermine the legitimacy of our democratic institutions our democratic leadership and it's going to play into the hands of our adversaries that would like to do nothing more than cause uh, chaos and consternation and disruption in democratic societies so that you know Russia and China can hold up their regimes sure. as vastly superior to democracy. Yeah, exactly. And they just point and look what's happening over there. Uh, great discussion, Christian. Really appreciate your time today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is Christian Luprecht, who is a national security expert and a professor at... Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. 
and they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Queens University. The Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccines. Uh, you heard what happened in the United States with Johnson & Johnson. Um, they pushed pause on using that vaccine because of concerns about blood clots. There have been six reported cases out of over 7 million doses delivered. Um, AstraZeneca has had their own issues as well. Uh, we've seen in Europe and here in Canada where there were some questions and there was a pause put in and they've really sort of narrowed the age range that that vaccine is being offered to. Um, so... Just how big of a risk is it? And uh, let's try and get some perspective on it. Uh, Linda Dresser is an infectious disease expert and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. She joins us now to talk a bit more about this. Um, Dr. Dresser, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. How are you doing? Great. Thank you. So Canada has reported its first instance of these blood clots following uh, AstraZeneca vaccination. So so we know there is a risk. There's no doubt. Uh, we've seen that reported. It, it seems to me like it's a very, very, very small risk. How would you categorize the risk level around Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca vaccines? So I agree with you. I think it's a very, very small risk. It's a very rare occurrence that um, we are seeing blood clots with either the AstraZeneca or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But I don't want to minimize it either. I think that anytime we see something that raises a signal like this, that it needs to be thoroughly investigated, it needs to be figured out, uh, needs to be explained, and uh, we need to be transparent about that. So I think we're trying to do a really good job with that. Um, and, I, and I think, though, that uh, we, we do want people to, to recognize that it's rare and that there are lots of things that we do that are associated with a rare risk. Nothing, no, no drug, no vaccine is without potential risk. Right. You know, I mean, when we talk about putting anything into our body, right, it doesn't really matter what it is. There is going to be a small risk to a certain group of the population if, you know, be it allergies or whatever else it may be, right? Exactly. Like even that cup of coffee you had this morning. Yeah, for some people, it could be it could be a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, and you take a look at uh, I know the one that's getting a lot of attention this week is birth control, and uh, widely used by millions and millions of Canadians. And the risk of blood clots with birth control is actually much much higher than it is with either of these vaccines, right? Yeah. So if you think about it, maybe four in one million people so far we're seeing might get a, a blood clot from the vaccine. Whereas you think of birth control, it's more like 900 in 1 million women who take birth control uh, pills will develop a clot. I don't know if those numbers put anything into perspective for people, but that is one way of looking at it. What about the fact that, you know, also if you get COVID, (laughs) blood clots are a pretty common symptom? Blood clots are extremely common with COVID. Blood clots are are extremely common with lots of other things that put you into the hospital surgery, um, for example. But... You know, your risk of getting a blood clot with COVID is about eight to times what your your risk is in the general population of, of having a clot, and particularly those cerebrovenous clots that we're hearing so much about. Why? I'm just wondering, because, you know, side effects and the risk factors that come with so many of the medications that we take seem to be much higher than they are with these two particular vaccines. So why why has this grabbed so much attention and caused federal governments to push pause and uh, Denmark has pulled it right off the table while they're using medications that come with much greater risks than this? 
So we, we've always accepted risk with medications, and uh, we will ultimately, I think, accept the risk with this vaccine as well. It's just everything's happening so fast and so new with COVID that anytime anything new appears, it seems to become a really, really, really big deal. And um, I think because it's global as well, when we see something, and the fact that we've seen it is evidence that the pharmacovigilance process works. This is a good thing that, mm-hmm. that has been recognized. This is really a good thing. It's it's such a bigger story than if it was just one thing in one country with one drug. Right. Yeah. Um, so um, I think that's part of part of the story, and I also think part of the story. Like I, I'm glad that that they decide to pause and take a look. I mean, if if it, we say it's only six six women out of over six million cases, but if you're one of those six women or the family of one of those six women, you're probably pretty glad that they decided to pause it and take a look. Sure. Because we want to understand it and and be able to explain it. What, what I what I think is interesting is, you know, Denmark decided to stop it. Denmark has a choice. You know, countries that have lots of different vaccines, they have a choice. So why not say, we're just not going to use that one. We're going to use the other ones that we have because we are a country with a choice. Other countries, so the UK, they've decided to, to make a cut point in who will get it at a mm-hmm. different point. Um, Canada's choosing under 55. The UK has said under 30. That's about choice and having options. And I think that's also something that maybe the, the public doesn't understand is that these aren't made just because there's a magic number or because there's some particular risk that we understand in a particular group. And it's, it's about choices as well. And what about if you are that one in a million who develops a blood clot? Um, we, we know what to look for and we know how to treat it, do we not? Yeah, I think that's one of the other things that's been great about the pharmacovigilance, again, is that it's been identified and now people know what to look for. And so I think part of the scary part when it was first being sort of identified is people didn't really know what they were seeing. So maybe it was delayed in the time that it took for the person to present to healthcare, might not have been diagnosed right away, maybe not managed the way we would manage it now. But if you get one of these vaccines and you're told, Look out for these things. Look out for shortness of breath, yeah. new persistent headaches, abdominal pain, swelling. Um, then you you know what to look for. You can go and it can be managed. And most of the time it's going to be managed effectively and the outcomes will not be um, life altering as they have been in all these cases that we've seen. So ultimately, what's your prediction, uh, if we can get into the guessing game, in terms of what we'll see with AstraZeneca in Canada and Johnson & Johnson when it does arrive here? At this point, we're carrying on with it. Um, Health Canada right. seems to have assessed the risk and said it's still far, uh, the benefits far outweigh the risks. Yeah, so Health Canada has made their decision. Now we have to wait and see what the committee that makes the vaccine-specific recommendations um, says. And so we know when AstraZeneca first came out, Health Canada said one thing, and then the the NACI, that's the the committee, said something else and said that's when they said we aren't going to give it to people over the age of of 65. Mm -hmm. So I think we are still in a bit of a waiting game to see how NACI is going to react to uh, this information and whether they will say we're going to continue with that recommendation of not for um, people under the age of 50, maybe they'll change it to 55. Right. And again, I think that comes back to the fact that we have choices in Canada. We have other vaccines available to us. Maybe we can use some of the other vaccines more specifically in particular age groups and distribute them across all of our age population. 
But still, right now, the most important thing is for anyone that's offered a vaccine to take whichever one is offered to you because they are still safer than getting COVID. Exactly. Yeah, that's the message. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Dresser. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. That okay, is, bye now. Yeah, that's Dr. Uh, Linda Dresser joining us to talk a bit about this whole situation surrounding blood clots. Um, she's an infectious disease expert and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. I'm sure you've heard the announcement that uh, Joe Biden announcing that all U.S. troops will be out of Afghanistan by September 11th. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, with our military leaders and intelligence personnel, with our diplomats and our development experts, with the Congress and the Vice President, as well as with Mr. Ghani and many others around the world, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. Um, so this sort of, I, I want to find out from our guest exactly how this fits in, because Donald Trump has said he wanted it over by May 1st, and now we're talking about September 11th, so we're going to get some clarity around that. But uh, regardless, this puts an end to America's longest war. 20 years ago, this started, and there's a lot of questions about, you know, what will this mean once the U.S. does leave that region of the world? So let's get uh, let's get into that now. Joining us, we have uh, Dr. David Burkusson, Professor of History, Director Emeritus of the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies at the University of Alberta. Doctor, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. You're very welcome. I'm at the University of Calgary, actually. Oh, did, what did I say? Alberta. Oh, okay. University of Calgary. All right. Um, okay. So, obviously, uh, ending... First of all, why don't we... Explain to me why this is grabbing so much attention when Donald Trump had uh, put in May 1st as the date yeah. for removing troops. Um, was that just ignored? What, what, what's the situation around those two announcements? I don't think that really makes a lot of difference. I mean, the Taliban have said that if the Americans stay beyond May 1st, that they're going to start attacking... American positions and so on, but I don't think they will. It certainly isn't in their interest. And from a military point of view, it would be absolutely stupid. Because what, what Biden has, has done is he said, I'm getting out. doesn't matter. There's no conditions. I'm leaving. Right. That's the end of it. We're there 20 years, and it's enough. So uh, I, don't think it, I don't think it makes any real difference whether they get out for May 1st or they get out for September 11th. I'm not sure they'll stay till September 11th, but uh, he made it clear that this was the absolute last possible end date of their involvement. And as you said, um, no conditions here. He's leaving. Yeah. No matter what yeah. happens between now and then, they're gone at the very latest by September 11th. Absolutely. So this is, uh, I guess, uh, well, you know, we count the wars that were either of indeterminate ending or which the United States clearly lost. Uh, and I would say, you know, you start with Viet with Vietnam and uh, and you come up to this one. Uh, the ending in Iraq was certainly indeterminate. They uh, they did overthrow Saddam Hussein, but they left a mess behind them. And uh, the other wars that they have been involved in, uh, certainly the Afghanistan war, as we see, uh, we can call it a, a, a defeat for the United States, or we can call it a defeat for Western intentions or a defeat for NATO intentions. There's no question that the Taliban outlasted mm -hmm. the NATO forces and the American forces, as they used to say, uh, you have the watches, but we have the time. And uh, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing the end of a conflict that took 20 years, and in the, at the end of the day, uh, the resolution for, for the West, for the United States certainly, and maybe for the government of Afghanistan, for Canada and other countries that participated, is a, is a poor one. 
Okay, there were no gains made. I mean, we, they, they did they did get Bin Laden. The Taliban was on the run. There were some human rights advances. I mean, there's nothing that we can say worked out well with this Afghanistan thing for two decades. No, no, no. I don't think that's true. I think uh, I think it's too early to tell. Okay. But the way the way the United States is leaving. Uh, what they're leaving behind is an Afghan government that, although on paper it controls a fairly large swath of territory in the country, um, has proven time and time again that its military forces are not really capable of standing up against the Taliban. There's something like, uh, we estimate, 85,000 Taliban soldiers uh, or fighters in Afghanistan, and uh, their method of fighting, which is you know, to use bombs and ambushes and IEDs and uh, attacks on civilian morale by launching attacks in major cities um, is something that the Afghan National Security Forces have been unable to stop. And I don't think there's going to be any major change in the ability of those forces to do very much in the future. And we also have to we have to take into consideration uh, the Americans leave their air power leaves with them. Mm-hmm. And although you can't fight a guerrilla war with air power effectively, it certainly helps to tamp down. Uh, the resistance of the uh, of the insurgents and uh, was able, for example, uh, any troops, American, NATO, whatever, who were wounded in the field, you've got immediate uh, helicopter evacuation or very close to immediate. We we still don't know uh, exactly how many lives those evacuations saved over the course of the last 20 years, but I would say probably thousands, and that won't be there for. for the uh, Afghan government forces in the future. Yeah, you know, and, um, you know, some of the U.S. ambassadors and diplomats are trying to smooth things over with the Afghan government, who are obviously concerned about what is going to happen once the American presence is removed. Because like you say, uh, you know, it's not a huge number, but it is a presence that I think has been something of a check, right? Yes, and and uh, and United United States is part the parts of the country where it, where uh, the American forces are still there. Plus, other parts of the country, but the Germans, for example, are still in the north in the Kunduz area. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it was kind of like the hole in the dike. What happens now is that the Afghan government is going to be on its own dealing with the Taliban, and uh, because of their religious fervor, uh, their belief in what they're doing. There, I don't. I hate to call it fanaticism, but uh, you know the way the way that they are so convinced uh, that the war is one that they must win for their you know religious reasons. Uh, it's hard to see the Afghan government standing up very long against the Taliban. So I think what will happen is that uh, the the whole situation in, in Afghanistan is going to deteriorate and we'll get a return of the kind of civil war we had before the Taliban took over in the 1990s. And ultimately, do we revert back to where we were before the U.S. arrived and we're in the same situation? I mean, we've got a listener who says, as a veteran, as soon as NATO yeah. troops pull out that vacuum, will be filled with the Taliban, regaining their hold in the region and imposing their will again on the people. So all my brothers died for what? And I've heard other people say that. Well, I know that. And, uh, you know, I was in support of uh, the Canadian contribution to Afghanistan. I still think it was something that we absolutely had to do as a nation. We can't stand around forever and watch our allies fighting battles that we should be part of. But our our aims in Afghanistan, our, that's, I was talking about Canada here, our aims in Afghanistan, which were largely to help NATO and the United States right. to add our weight. You know, we didn't win the war in Afghanistan. It wasn't possible that we were going to. 
but the parts of Af- of Afghanistan, and I'm talking about Kandahar province, where we were and where we did most of the fighting, and where our soldiers, for the in large measure, and our civilians died. Uh, we did the job we were supposed to do, but we couldn't stay forever. We are we don't have a large military. We uh, uh, our military budgets are constantly being cut. They're probably going to get cut again in the next federal budget. And uh, you know, I think the job that we did was a job we had to do. And uh, it's as different in the United States. The, the American aim, overall aim, was basically uh, to to build a new government in Afghanistan, and that simply wasn't possible. And this kind of state building uh, just it, it just goes nowhere, especially if you have another country right on your border, like Pakistan, right, yeah. with an open border, who's going to support the insurgents. You know, it was the same thing in, in Vietnam. The Americans had North Vietnam there, and as much as they were able to win or not win in the South, the troops and the supplies kept pouring in from the North, and they tried to use their air power to stop it, but they were not successful in doing so. So it's, uh, you know, it's a very hard task to try to, say, rope off a part of the country and say, okay, this is, we're going we're gonna to save this part of the country for, I don't know, democracy, women, whatever it is. But on the outside of that area, you've got all these other people who are going to come in and say, no, you're not. And I'm going to do everything I can to try to upset your, your political goals here. So is it just the harsh realization and, and the tough decision finally after 20 years that, you know what, we can't be here forever. We can't change this forever. Um, at some point, we got to cut our losses, as astronomical as they are at this point, and, yeah. uh, and, and reverse course? Yeah, well, that's clearly the decision that uh, Biden has arrived at, and I don't blame him for one minute. I mean, how much longer was the United States supposed to stay there? The main threats to uh, Western security or United States security today we know comes from uh, a so-called resurgent Russia. Uh, It may not be resurgent in that it has the the power that the Soviet Union had, but, you know, it, it is making weapons advances. It's building up troops in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. It's building uh, or on the borders of Ukraine. It's certainly building up its military power in the far north. It's intervening in countries along the periphery. And, of course, there's China, which is clearly challenging the United States for supremacy, certainly in the Western Pacific, and some people would say uh, in most parts of the world. And that's where the resources have got to go right now. So uh, we probably are going to th- see things revert and uh, I mean that's just the position I, I think right? I think it's it, we'll be really lucky if there is no civil war in Afghanistan between those who are against the Taliban and also the other ethnic groups the Taliban are largely uh, a, a group that represents the Pashtun tribe in Afghanistan which is about 40% of the population mm-hmm. but uh, you know other other, other ethnic uh, minorities or tribes in Afghanistan especially in the north, they're not going to be happy to see Taliban rule reimposed. And that's why I think all the ingredients are there for civil war. (sighs) Ominous, ominous. Okay, doctor, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay, no problem. That is Dr. David Berkusson, uh, who is a a professor at the University of Calgary and also an expert in this specific subject matter. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.